Welcome to Bet and Breakfast, a podcast from BetSided. Hey, does anybody want coffee? Who wants coffee? It's sports betting for everyone. I'm here to tell you today that the New York Yankees season is done. Stick a fork in them, it's over. Lamar Jackson, I can't believe he's that low on the list that he's my bet for sure at this point in the season. Early leans, best bets, props, parlays. If you can bet it, we've got it. I'm taking the over on this. If you look at the last five games, this is a game waiting for points to be scored. Tom Brady, I think everyone's heard of him. If Brady puts up the numbers, they have the 10th easiest schedule the rest of the way. Get in, get out, and you're ready to go. I think they're going to have to give him the award if Dallas ends up locking up this division and possibly even that number one seed. And here are your hosts, Ben Heisler, Ian McMillan, Peter Dewey, Donovan Smoot, and Reed Wallet. What comes before anything? What have we always said is the most important thing? Breakfast family. I thought you meant the things you need. What's good, everybody? Welcome in. It is Bet and Breakfast, the super wild card slash Black Monday slash national championship playoff edition. It's good to have you all with us. Ben Heisler with the Monday crew of Reed Wallach and Peter Dewey. Gentlemen, it is good to see you. We also have the great Joanne Stoner producing our show today as well. I don't even know where to begin. Do we start with that, with arguably the, the the greatest game of the NFL season last night, which is ironic considering that so many of us were rooting for that game to end in a tie. We can start there. We can talk about some of the latest breaking news that's coming in here on Black Monday as we are live at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on the 10th. We can talk about the national championship. We have best bets coming up later on. I don't know how we're going to take everything from today's show, guys, and condense it into the next 15 or 20 minutes. Like, Where where do we want to start? I, I'm just throwing it off to you. I'm throwing it to our audience. I, I think we, we have to start with, with the game last night, right? Because we're I, I didn't sleep last night. I don't know what, if you what? guys see it in my in the bags under my eyes. <laughs> um, Maybe working on about four, four and a half hours. But, but last night's game was just exceptional. Did both of you guys, you're on the East Coast. Did you both make it to the end and – did you have any issues sleeping last night? Oh, trouble sleeping, yeah, but uh, definitely made it for the end of the game. Come on, it's week 18, winner, go home. Obviously, imagine going to sleep at before, like, I guess you think the Raiders go up like two touchdowns, it's over. Uh, no, we were up the entire way. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a crazy game. Obviously, Raiders get the win. Um, I don't really know what you guys thought. The timeout was weird. Like live, my gut reaction was, why is Staley calling timeout? That's a weird thing to do. The more I thought about it, I guess it was more he wanted to get his defense set. He wants it because this was the play. Because I thought if the Raiders didn't pick up even a first down, if they picked up like three, four, five yards, they were going to punt it away. They were not going to um, kick the game-winning field goal if it was probably 50-plus because you miss it all of a sudden. Herbert could go the other way, pick up 20 yards, and you could win the game the other way. So when Jacobs runs for 10 yards, that I think changed the whole calculus of the play. I don't think the timeout necessarily did anything to change. I think the Raiders were going to run the ball. If they got enough yards to get a comfortable field goal, then they were going to kick it. If they didn't, they would punt it away. What do you guys think? I think think they were playing to win regardless because they knew they didn't want to play Kansas City. They've gotten smoked by Kansas City both times they played them this year. So I I think they were playing – I thought he called the timeout when I was – at, at, initially, I was like, why did he call the timeout? And then I saw people took, like, screenshots on Twitter. They were not lined up at all defensively on that play. Like, if the Raiders had ran a play, like, the, the Chargers had guys running everywhere. So I think that was part of the reason why he called the timeout. But, I, I mean, 
I just can't see like I could have saw the the Raiders trying to run the clock down to like last possession and just kick a 50 yarder if they had to like I don't think they would have just been like we're gonna throw the game away because I there's no way they were like we can choose between Cincinnati and Kansas City we will willingly play Kansas City after what happened to them this year so there, there's a lot to take in the the full quote from Derek Carr after the game and you can read this over at, at Betsided as well Michelle Tafoya asked him specifically if it changed their strategy once the state, once the Chargers called timeout with 38 seconds left on third and four. So the full quote from Derek Carr said, it definitely did, obviously, but we knew no matter what, we didn't want to tie. We wanted to win the football game. Obviously, if you tie your in and all those things, my mindset all day, I was even texting with Aaron Rodgers this morning. My mindset was to make sure that we were the only team moving on after this. So uh, there's been a lot of blowback that said the Raiders were trying to win the game regardless. However, if you read the quote and, and hear the quote, it said, he said point blank, it changed their strategy. So even though they wanted to win, even though the mindset was to win, uh, they, they talked about it post game too. Um, Rich Passaccia mentioned it in his post game interview. He said that they were considering going for the tie in that scenario as well. So I think it was very much in play. And then once Jacobs end up having the 10 yard run, that put them in position. Yeah. So Staley said post game that they wanted to get their best run personnel on the field, which is, is funny because the Chargers have been able to stop the run all year. And then you showed, you put your best personnel on the field. They still can't run stop over. the 10 yard run. <laughs> so I, I, I think you're damned if you do damned, if you don't, but it, it's hard to do hindsight here, but I, I do think Staley kind of played himself a little bit and he's, he's going to take the brunt of it. it. I can't, I can't fathom being, having that good of a quarterback. And I suppose maybe with Russell Wilson this year, you can see it, but two years now, Justin Herbert has put up unbelievable numbers and the chargers have not made the postseason. I, I don't know what you do next year if the same situation occurs because there was talks of him being in the NFL MVP this year. Yeah. I have just two thoughts on the chargers, the whole game, Herbert, that's legendary stuff. That is, if you're a chargers fan, you, I know it like hurts, but like that was future MVP Super Bowl champion level stuff. He, single-handedly carried that team i mean yes, no sir. one was executing all night on both sides of the ball um the right tackle storm i'm forgetting his last name was a uh, turnstile for max crosby so to me justin herbert he carried them to overtime and all the way through i mean that last driving regulation was absurd so th there's that also the raiders should not have kicked a field goal if that gets blocked and goes the other way like they should have taken the tie regardless i get they kicked it and they made it and they won but they should not have kicked that ball in any sense of the word. If that, if you, you basically are giving away the chance to go to the playoffs, because what if something goes wrong? I mean, it's a very minor chance, but what if they block it? What if the ball, what if you fumble the snap? Crazy things happen. So I still think the Raiders should not have kicked it. I get that why they did. But again, I think that Jacob's run on third down set up that field goal. So the Chargers, I think they dropped the ball all night. They were the better team. The refs were a little, eh, but, you know, I think that this wasn't a Staley thing. This wasn't a Herbert thing. This was the fact that wide receivers, uh, defenders, they didn't make plays all night. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I just think, like, I, I felt the Raiders, once you got into that position where you were semi in field goal range, you had to win the game purely because you, like, you got to a point where if you were going to run the clock down like they did where it was two seconds, like the chances of them blocking a field goal and returning it for a touchdown, I feel like are way lower than like 
anything else. Like you win that game, take a knee, like, though. avoiding Kansas City was huge though for them because they they lose that they tie that, that game. Now you still have to play the Chiefs in the first round. The Bengals. I'm high on the Bengals. I think they can beat the Bengals. I don't know they, if they, they have can. a prayer against the Chiefs. I that, wonder about the emotional. I wonder about the emotional letdown though next week. You know, you you come off like just such a rush in that game, like literally one of the craziest games of all time, and then to then go to Cincinnati on a short week, nonetheless, it's the first game of wildcard weekend, which I know we're going to get into next. I, I wonder, cause I kind of like the Raiders too. Cause I think the Bengals are a little, maybe a little overvalued, but I just, I wonder about this, you know, the letdown effect. That's yeah. I, I, I think all of that can be in play. And uh, by the way, the, the line for, for the Steelers in that game over at Winbet, my plus 13 and <laughs> for what it's worth, um mike tomlin now is over 500 in his career straight up as an underdog and he's like i think 45 25 and three i i'll get you those exact numbers in a, in a second um still the best record by far against the spread as an underdog so for anybody saying it's not it's too many points it's not enough points for the chiefs tomlin for whatever reason has his teams prepared in this situation they're not going to upset kansas city uh, but I, I think it's very much in play that they cover. We'll get to that in just a second. Um, really quickly, I want to get your guys' reaction to some of the news that we've seen so far uh, on Black Monday. According to Adam Schefter, the Chicago Bears have fired both Matt Nagy and Ryan Pace. Um, I have some thoughts on that that I'll, I'll get to in a second. Brian Flores out as the head coach of the Miami Dolphins, which is, is fairly surprising considering their late season turnaround. Um, also, uh, according to Courtney Cronin of ESPN, the Vikings firing both Mike Zimmer and Rick Spielman. And then, of course, on Saturday, uh, Peter's Denver Broncos getting rid of head coach Vic Fangio. Any major surprises, any big takeaways from the early news as of this morning with some of these head coaching firings and, and also some of the GM firings as well? Reed, I'll Steven, start with Steven, oh, my bad. I was going to say Stephen Ross has lost his mind. He has absolutely lost his mind that they fired Brian, Brian Flores. I, I can't – and they kept Chris Greer, the GM. If anything is wrong with that Dolphins team, it's what Chris Greer has done with these draft picks. Two years ago, they took Tua, Austin Jackson, and I'm going to butcher his last name, so I'm not going to say it, but the Noah cornerback out of um, Auburn. He didn't play basically the entire year. Austin Jackson is so bad that they couldn't play him at tackle. They had to kick him inside the guard. He barely was playing well there, too. He had three first-round picks, and he basically missed on all of them because they took Tua over Herbert. And they fired Brian Flores after this team got back into a semi-playoff spot with two weeks to play in the season. I can't believe it. And Ian Rappaport tweeted that the main reason Deshaun Watson wanted to go to Miami was because of Brian Flores. So this is definitely a play of we want Tua to be the quarterback, which is fine. But if you're going to do that, then like the GM's got to own up to his mistakes too. I, I cannot believe they fired him. So you're saying that the Flores firing is more the GM basically saying, I picked the right guy. I just brought in the wrong coach to coach it. I, I think it's just a power struggle at this point. Like Ross is the one who said he fired Flores. I think they obviously trust Greer more than they trust Flores. I just, it just doesn't make any sense to me. You look at some of the moves they made, like their big offseason move was signing Will Fuller. He basically didn't play the whole year. Like they have made so many moves draft wise and free agency wise that didn't work out. They traded for Bernard McKinney. He got cut before the season started. They cut Shaq Lawson, who they signed last year. They cut Kyle Van Noy. Like none of these guys that they've brought in since Flores has gotten there have become key contributors. And then they blame the fact that they were bad this year on him. And you look at the games that he played with where Tua actually was healthy and they were an over 500 team. It just makes zero sense. Any surprise for you, Reed? 
Yeah, the surprise that Joe Judge is still employed by the New York uh, Football Giants. Uh, that guy. As I, of now, as of as, as of now, now, I, we're it's recording this. Nine forty-three. Nine forty-three Eastern. He's still employed. I I just think this guy. I thought it was kind of a big swing by the Giants. I was with it, but this guy's been just stepping on his own toes for weeks now. I don't think there's been any sort of progression. I think Gettleman's got to go, which it seems like he's already done. Um, they need a complete culture change. I'd get in a new GM, I'd get in a young coach and try and restart this thing. But on the Brian Flores thing, I just saw this on Twitter that um, a lot of connections to uh, Jim Harbaugh, uh, Michigan, obviously rumored to be connected to the Vegas job, the Chicago job. Stephen Ross, owner of the Dolphins, is a Michigan alumni. Would he pull Harbaugh all the way to South Beach? He was just there, just there on New Year's Eve playing a football game. So Maybe um, that's enough to pull him back to the NFL. That would be really, really interesting because I thought Harbaugh was long for the college kind of gig, but maybe he gets a godfather offer to come to Miami. I don't really know if that changes the fundamental issues with the Dolphins. I think they need a lot more help. I still don't really know if two is the guy, but that was a weird firing for sure. I think they have something in mind, like a Harbaugh type move. That's the only reason why they would make that move. Yeah, I think if you're going to get rid of Flores at this particular point, you need to have something already in your pocket, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's one of those situations where, like, in, especially in college, you're always talking about, like, okay, if you're going to get rid of this coach who's been good, you better make sure that you – I guess it's for any situation, you better make sure that you have a better replacement coming in as well. Um, you know, I, I think all of that is, is going on as well. And, and, Peter, you brought up an interesting point. This is from Jeff Darlington over on Twitter – uh, the NFL insider at ESPN saying, well, I realize many are assuming Flores' departures tied to Harbaugh's potential availability. I can assure you that is not the case. The Dolphins are not targeting Jim Harbaugh per sources. The decision to fire Flores is entirely independent. So uh, maybe it goes back to the point of it is a GM versus head coach struggle and their GM just trying to, to save face here. Um, as for my thoughts on, on the Bears situation, I, I think Nagy had to go. Um, I was rooting for him. And at the time, I actually thought it was a very good hire. Andy Reid even said personally that of all the people on his head coaching tree, Nagy was by far and away the most prepared to take on a head coaching role. And the first year, it looked like it was going to happen. You know, their defense was outstanding. It was top five and led the league in turnovers. Nagy went 12-4, and four, both him and Ryan Pace run coach of the year and executive of the year. But the issue was you had a first-round quarterback that never developed. And then you had Pace in his situation, who not only drafted a first-round quarterback, moved up a spot and gave up a ton of draft capital to get his guy in Trubisky, passing up on Mahomes, passing up on Deshaun Watson. But he also signed Mike Glennon that season for three years, $45 million. Then factor in the decision that Trubisky didn't pan out. Then moving up and trading up to get Justin Fields, who I, I believe in that move but you're still talking about multiple quarterbacks signed. He traded a fourth round pick for Nick Foles, who was the, the third string quarterback on the team. He signed Andy Dalton to a $13 million deal this year. I, I, this is from Eric Lambert um, over on Twitter. Ryan Pace signed Mike Lennon and Andy Dalton for a combined $57 million. They've combined for 12 touchdown passes and 14 interceptions. John Fox and Matt Nagy under Ryan Pace went 48 and 65 with zero top 10 offenses. Pace had to go. And while he might've hit on some late round draft picks, there were far too many misses at the most important position. You cannot keep a guy in charge. You cannot let that guy go through four or five different quarterbacks and only have one opportunity where you can play in the postseason once you get the winning record. At that point, you have to move on and, and good for the Chicago bears for finally recognizing that that was the case. All right. 
went through Black Monday from the NFL. We went through some of the craziness from, from last night. Um, really quickly, I want to get to uh, some initial thoughts on, on the championship game tonight. And I know that uh, a couple of them haven't mentioned in our, in our um, uh, best bets for tonight. But uh, just your thoughts. We have uh, some reports coming in over at WinBet that they just took a million-dollar bet from Mattress Mac uh, on Alabama at uh, plus three. That has since moved the line down to Georgia at minus two and a half versus number one Alabama. Total in that game moving up from 52 to 52 and a half. Uh, let, let, let's go around really quickly, just initial thoughts on the game before we get to best bets a little bit later on. Peter, I'll start with you on this. Yeah, I'm, I'm very intrigued to, watch, to see this rematch. Um, I know Reed has talked about this a lot. I'm surprised that this line has moved down as much as it has um, like it, towards Alabama, but I, I still like Nick Saban in this game, man. Like I – I'd said it in the in the um in the semifinal like I I just can't bet against him in the spot especially when he's getting points like I, I don't know Kirby Smart has not been great against him in his career and I I just don't I think the fact that it's Bryce Young versus Stetson Bennett like I know the Georgia defense is really good but like you cannot tell me there's any situation where you would want Stetson Bennett as your quarterback if that's the option and that's why I gotta go with Alabama. Yeah, um, I like Georgia a lot. Uh, really, really think that this line is an overreaction. I thought I, – I made a mistake in the SEC championship game. I thought I thought the line was pretty correct with Georgia laying six and a half. What I didn't handicap for was the motivation mismatch. Alabama lose that game. They still probably make the playoffs, but you never know. You know, two-loss team, whatever. Georgia was in no matter what. So, maybe Georgia kind of held back a little bit. Maybe they – didn't really they took their foot off the gas they were looking ahead to a potential national championship game so there's that involved we talked about the Stetson Bennett factor he was playing from a negative game script the entire game looked overwhelmed but it really seemed like Georgia made a lot of steps in self-scouting themselves on both sides of the ball I know Michigan is not Alabama but what Michigan is is a very disciplined defense Alabama is um middle of the pack they're in the 60s in terms of explosive pass defense Georgia only trails Alabama an explosive pass offense. So Stetson Bennett's been chucking the ball down the field quite a bit. If he could hit a few big plays and open up that running game, this Georgia offense is going to look much different than the SEC championship game. And most importantly, John Mechie's not playing in this game. He had almost 100 yards receiving in the first half of the SEC championship game. He's um, Bryce Young's favorite um, wide receiver. I know everyone's going to talk about Jamison Williams, but Williams is a burner down the field. He's wide open because everyone's afraid of Mechie. I know that's not it's not every time, but Williams is going to have a lot more attention on him. I think that the Georgia pass rush is going to make Bryce Young, who struggles under pressure, make a few mistakes, take a few sacks. And I think Georgia wins this one. I'm on the money line. Just forget the points. But I think this line is a complete overreaction. You know, three, four points now. I mean, that's way too much. This game was played a month ago. Yeah, and, and, and to that point, Reed, you can read uh, Reed's keys over for Georgia as well as for Alabama. Alabama. Can't even talk this morning because – no sleep from the NFL wildcard game, <laughs> our NFL final regular season finale. Uh, but you can go and read Reed's keys uh, for each team over at, uh, at BetSided as well as our, our betting previews. Also got some interesting trends from Nick Saban in, in the College Football National Championship. Um, I also think you're, you've seen Alabama in every College Football National Championship that they've played in under the new system. The over has hit. For whatever reason, their defense has just not been there the last several years in the National Championship game, with the exception um, of that matchup against Georgia, and even still the over hit in that game. Um, I, I think there's more of that reaction more towards the over, and people are starting to pick up on that trend. So uh, while the the under is not my best bet, it is something that I'm keeping my, honest, my eye on, especially 
as that number continues to climb. But uh, yeah, Nick Saban also, by the way, in rematch games in the college level has never lost. But you know who else has never lost in rematch games in the same season? Kirby Smart. <laughs> One game sample size, but both of them are undefeated when it comes to the college level. All right, let, let's talk NFL uh, Super Wildcard Weekend opening lines. Uh, they're finally out over at WinBet. Uh, some of them have already moved quite a bit from the consensus line, including Tampa Bay going from a seven-point favorite at opening against the Eagles up to minus nine and a half. So we've already seen a pretty big swing for Tampa Bay. I think their win against Carolina opened up some some eyes, especially with Tom Brady really having nobody to throw to other than Mike Evans. and MVP. <clears throat> um, so tell me, that's that's another one as well. Um, g- give me a give me a play. Give me a, an early lean here, guys. Peter, I'll, I'll start with you. Who do you like uh, as far as Saturday, Sunday, or Monday's action goes? Yeah, I, I'm going to look at the Cardinals-Rams game. I like the Cardinals with the points plus four and a half. Um, we've talked about it on this show before. Cliff Kingsbury's really good as a road underdog, 13-3-2, and two, and Matt Stafford does not cover against winning teams. So I think this is going to be a really close game. Might come down to the wire. Obviously, third time these teams are going to play this season. Um, but I just The Rams have not looked impressive to me um, over the past few weeks. Like, I know they've come away with some wins, and then obviously this past week, just like I, I can't get behind this offense. Stafford looks really, really banged up. And the defense hasn't been the elite defense that we all thought it was going to be with, uh, you know, Aaron Donald, Von Miller, Jalen Ramsey. I I think there's like room for the Cardinals to make this a game. I don't think they win, but I could see, you know, this coming down to a field goal at the end of the game, or maybe it comes down to the Cardinals have a last second drive. But I I love them getting four and a half points. I would love it to, to get past five, but I'll take it at four and a half. Uh, I'll find the number in a second, but uh, nobody better as a road underdog over the last three years covering the spread than than Cliff Kingsbury in that game as well. So definitely on the sharp side there. Who do you like, Reed? Uh, I'm leaning with San Francisco. I have a feeling that people are going to be backing Dallas here just because off of, I mean, two of the past three weeks, they've hung 50 plus points on NFC's foes. I mean, the Eagles game on Saturday, they were starting their like me at, at cornerback. So you know, I wasn't really impressed. I haven't been impressed with the Cowboys in a really long time, to be honest. I mean, two weeks ago, they played the Cardinals and laid a complete egg. Um, the Niners, they could keep this Dallas offense off the field. They could run the ball really well. Everyone's going to talk about this Dallas pass rush, but if Trent Williams is back for the Niners, that's the key to this game, in my opinion. He didn't play last um, – or yesterday, I should say, against the Rams with an elbow injury. If he's back, this Niners offense is going to run on this Dallas defense. And – the Cowboys' defense is feast or famine. They're plus 14 in turnover margin. Those things tend to regress over the course of a season. I don't really back Dallas at all. I'm waiting to see if I can maybe get three and a half or four before I bet it. But San Francisco, I think, is really live. Kyle Shanahan also 25-17 as an underdog. Um, I just I like San Francisco here. We've seen this uh, Niners team really show up as an underdog. Yeah, talking about two coaches that have done fairly well as underdogs. You mentioned with Cliff Kingsbury as a road dog. Uh, Kyle Shanahan over the course of his career as an underdog. You know who else has done really well as an underdog? Mike Tomlin. Since 2007, I teased this earlier in the show, Mike Tomlin, 47, 25, and 3 against the spread as an underdog. Chiefs are really good. Um, <laughs> and they pulled one out of their you-know-what uh, against Denver on Saturday in that win on the road. But I, I think they're going to cover the 13 here. That's a lot of points. Uh, Kansas City obviously will, will be ready to go, but – uh, for whatever reason, it seems like they they just let teams hang around for far too long. I think TJ Watt could be a, a potential problem for the Chiefs offensive line, which has improved this year. But it, it just feels like 
one one side of the, the Chiefs is working, the other side isn't. There's been very few situations this year where I feel like everybody has been completely in sync. Um, and Pittsburgh just game plans really well. I think they're going to slash it up and, and make this an uncomfortable game for, for Kansas City to get really comfortable offensively. Um, and, and the key against Pittsburgh right now is running the ball, and, and that's not something that Kansas City has been doing a great job of this year. So I, I think this is going to be a little bit closer. They're, Steelers aren't going to win. And Tomlin, by the way, since 2007, also is a winning record straight up as an underdog. This will not be one of those instances. Uh, but I think 13 points feels like a reasonable number to go ahead and, and jump on Pittsburgh here uh, in the Sunday night game. I expect it to be a little bit closer than most people uh, anticipate. All right, before we wrap things up, let's get to our best bets for tonight. Uh, both myself and Reed are on the College Football National Championship. So, Peter, I will start things off with you. Uh, shocking. Looking at the NBA once again, who do you like tonight? Yeah, I was going to go Alabama money line, but I feel like Reed's going to make fun of me if I do that. So I'm going to stick with the <laughs> NBA. Um, I'm going to go Pacers plus seven against the Celtics. Uh, I don't know if you guys have been watching a lot of the Celtics lately, but they cannot hold on to a lead for dear life. I know they killed the Knicks the other day, but they also blew a 25 point lead against the Knicks on um, Thursday. So not, not a great team in the fourth quarter this year. The Pacers are one of the best teams in the NBA as an underdog. They're 12 and six against the spread and they've covered in four of their last five as an underdog. Boston, on the other hand, has covered just once in its last six games as a favorite, and that was that game against the Knicks on Saturday when they won by 24. I really think that this Pacers team, especially Malcolm Brogdon, is questionable tonight. If he plays, I think this line's going to move a lot, so I like it at plus seven right now um, with the uncertainty around him. I think the Pacers are going to be able to hang around in this one. Reid, I know you mentioned that you like Georgia, and you like Georgia a lot, but more so on the money line as opposed to the spread? Yeah, yeah. Um... Just forget the points. I think that this number is just a little – I still make this like four and a half, five in favor of Georgia. So I'm laying it. I've had them as the best team since, um, you know, since like week three, I'm pretty sure. So, you know, I'm Ryan with the team I think is the best. And, you know, Wolf, Wolf, here come the dogs. Yeah. And I think, you know, we mentioned win bet moving that line. Most uh, consensus books has it at uh, minus three tonight. Win bet moved it down to, to minus two and a half. They need money on the Georgia side. Um, good opportunity to fade Mattress Mac, which uh, is something that I've been successful with in the past. Um, you know, I think it's a win-win for everybody that uh, you know goes against them because they get a free mattress or something like that. Um, I'll go ahead and just take the better team here, and that's been Georgia more consistently all year. And, and I agree with you, Ray. I, I think there was a motivational factor because even if they lost that game to Alabama in the SEC championship, we still knew that they were going to get into that game. And also, might be a little bit of history here, but this will be the first time that a number three seed has won the college football playoff national championship. So Georgia with an opportunity, A, for Nick Saban to lose an in-season rematch game, for him to possibly go under in a college football national championship game during the college football playoff, and for Saban to lose in a championship game against a former assistant. So I like Georgia. I will go ahead and do it on the points. Georgia minus two and a half for tonight. And there you have it, guys. A bit of a longer show, but we had so much to get to here on today's episode of bet and breakfast again if you're watching this live on youtube make sure you guys go ahead and subscribe uh, you can do that as well by going to our, our page in the link below for anybody that's checking out the podcast we encourage you guys to check us out there as well on the audio side for my guys peter and reed also our big thanks to joanne stoner for producing the show today i am ben we will talk to you guys on thursday for a brand new episode of bet and breakfast until then we will talk to you guys soon so long 